Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. God bless you, get woke. Folks, MIP is now COVID free, meaning free to all subscribers as we navigate this pandemic. We're thinking about everyone and we've got to get through this together. So for a limited time, no fee to subscribe to make it plain on your favorite podcast app. Ladies and gentlemen, my guest today hails from one of our favorite publications, ProPublica. And she just like ProPublica does, even before she got to ProPublica, she was making uh, a difference in terms of her groundbreaking journalism. First of all, she graduated with honors from Columbia Graduate School of Journalism and the School of International and Public Affairs at Columbia. She was the recipient of the Pulitzer Traveling Fellowship and the Brown Institute Computational Journalism Award. She's a veteran having been published in the New York Times, Atlantic Vice, BBC News, the Chronicle of Higher Education, and Consumer Reports. Uh, prior to joining ProPublica, she was a recipient, recipient of a Fulbright Fellowship to Israel, where she reported on the plight of refugees from Darfur and Eritrea. She's also produced a documentary, Phantom Cowboys, about male adolescents in small industry towns, which premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival in 2018. But listen to this. Um, a piece she published with the New York Times 
on a New Jersey student debt agency prompted a new law and several new bills aimed at increasing consumer protections for student borrowers and their families. And then following her reporting on the largest accreditor of for-profit colleges, the U.S. Department of Education stripped the agency of its powers. And her reporting at the New York Times, along with Erica Green, also led to a federal civil rights investigation of discrimination against Native American students on a reservation in Montana. I say all that, I share all that with you to say that her journalism makes a difference and that's what good journalism is supposed to do. So the story we're going to talk about today may have a similar effect in the sense that um, she wrote about, along with Joshua Kaplan, about the New Orleans hospital system sending patients with coronavirus home to die. And now that that has been exposed, the Louisiana Legislative Black Caucus is looking into investigating. So to talk to us about all of that, difference-making journalist Annie Waldman. Annie, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. It's, it's a pleasure to have you. Well, congratulations, obviously, on all your work and even on, on this piece. Uh, you first wrote about it uh, a little while ago. And as, as, is it accurate as a result of what you exposed that Louisiana Legislative Black Caucus is now choosing to take a look into this? That's right. We just published a story today, actually, where we announced that the Black Caucus uh, is looking into it. And they found the practices that we described in our piece disturbing. And they're looking into perhaps having an investigation. They met with the governor of Louisiana last week to discuss the points that we raised in our article and are trying to get data and greater details on what happened so that they can understand and perhaps even change things so it doesn't happen again. Well, let's tell the story. Sure. Uh, there were patients that were COVID positive that mm -hmm. hospitals just sent home rather than care for them. Right. So, so one thing, so my colleagues at ProPublica and I, we have been looking into different hotspots around the country uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, trying to understand if hospitals could do something more, if the healthcare system could do something more to help COVID patients. I live in New Orleans, and since the beginning of the pandemic, I'd wanted to understand how the city's healthcare system had handled this early surge of patients. So working with my colleague, Josh Kaplan, we received data from New Orleans coroner's office and we found something that we didn't find in the other cities we looked at, New York, Chicago, Seattle. And that was that many people were dying outside of hospitals and nursing homes in New Orleans and many of them at home. At first we thought it could be that people were not getting to the hospital fast enough and that the virus was progressing so quickly that people weren't able to get medical care. But when we started talking to families of the deceased and we spoke with about 36 families, we realized that many people actually went to the hospital for care and then were sent home. And in many cases, they were sent home to die with hospice care. All of these patients were black and the vast majority of them came from one healthcare system, Oshner Health, which is the largest hospital network in Louisiana, which treated about 60% of the region's critically ill coronavirus patients. So you said all of them were African-American? That's correct. Uh, and, and, you know, we actually heard uh, incredibly horrifying stories. You know, the families of eight patients 
uh, told us that this healthcare system had pressured them into accepting hospice care for their loved ones who had COVID-19, even as some questioned or even pushed back against the suggestion. And three families told us that there wasn't, um, that the hospital told them there wasn't enough space to continue treating the patient in the hospital or that the hospital needed the bed for another patient. And when it comes down to race, when we spoke with all these families, we did speak with some white families as well, but the experiences seemed divided along racial lines. While black people died from the virus at a disproportionate rate in New Orleans, and white people actually died outside of the hospitals at a slightly higher rate than black people, um, in many of the cases that we looked at, this was by choice. We spoke with the families of three white families who said that their loved ones died at home or with hospice care, but they made arrangements to avoid the hospital and stay home instead. That was not the case with many of the black families that we spoke with. In many of those cases, they sought care at the hospital, but the hospital sent them home where they died. Mm. So for the white families that were able to make arrangements at, at home versus the black families who went to hospitals, um, was that a result of disproportionate or inadequate um, access to healthcare, to stay yeah. at home or what? That's a very good question. You know, we were not exactly sure, you know, why, if this was some kind of a push, if this was some kind of, you know, either unconscious or even conscious discrimination that was happening. We're not 100% sure about that. But what's clear is that you do see different experiences when families came to the hospital for COVID-19 treatment and also for those who were sent home. You know, many of these families who had hospice care at home, they might have thought that hospice was going to be around every day to make sure that their family was comfortable and not suffering in their final days of COVID-19. But in many cases, the families felt that the hospice companies were largely absent. They weren't around to help out in moments of uh, urgent need. For example, when a family member might be in extreme pain or appear to be experiencing extreme pain, or they didn't show up in the final days of a patient's life, which can be incredibly traumatic for families. And so it really does seem that, you know, regardless of why these things happened, there were different experiences and those experiences have to be taken seriously. You know, and we even went to the hospital and asked, you know, why why are we finding these racial disparities and and you know stories from families and hospice referrals but they really said that you know there there was no that even though there are these disparities that mostly is because so many patients who have severe cases of covid-19 are black and you know these disparities have long existed in our healthcare system so really they did not uh, address our questions head on related to this but what we've found is actually in the past research has shown that Black families in general have disproportionately negative experiences with end-of-life care. Um, they're less likely to say to rate their care as good compared with white families. They are also more likely to report absent or even problematic physician communication or concerns with being informed about a family member's state of health. You mentioned the white families in New Orleans that used hospice, Annie. Did, mm -hmm. did, you, did they inform you or let you know that their experience with hospice care was more responsive than some of the black people yeah, that's a very good question. You know, I did speak with one family who um, had hospice care, one white family who had hospice care, and uh, they said that 
they were mostly doing a lot of the work as well, similar to what the black families experienced. Um, but, but that was something that that family chose. They chose to avoid the hospital. They chose to have the situation at home. They also said that they had doctors on speed dial. They had drug prescriptions ready to go. So it did seem that they had a higher level of care um, than the black families that were at the whims of the hospice companies in the region. Um, a statistic I want to uh, lift up from your writing, um, and uh, I, I just had it in front. Of, oh, here it is. <laughs> I thought I lost it. Um, nationally, coronavirus patients aged 85 and older died at home only 4% of the time. According to data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, you write. But local coroner records show that in New Orleans, it was 17%, uh, four times as many died at home. That's, wow, that's a lot. Yeah, no, I mean, the data was a red flag for us. You know, prior to the pandemic, an increasing number of Americans were actually choosing to die at home with hospice. Um, but the data during the pandemic, it actually shows that this trend has flipped with most COVID-19 deaths actually occurring in the hospital because the disease is so severe and individual patients actually rapidly decline pretty quickly. Um, so what we, an expert told us that if we found an area in which there were lots of home deaths occurring, it was a signal that there was potentially an overwhelmed healthcare system. So when we saw these rates in New Orleans, we knew that we had to dig deeper and find out why the numbers were so high. We also spoke with hospitals in Seattle and Chicago and New York City, which were three other early hotspots. And we asked them about whether they used hospice care in this way or sent patients home in this way. And they said they didn't. They said that, you know, the threat of infection to vulnerable caretakers, as well as the potentially harrowing deaths that family have to weather alone, uh, were, were too much of a hindrance for them sending patients home. So they handled most of the palliative care cases inside the hospital. Mm. Um what do we know about the uh, the health system? Oxner is that how you pronounce this? What what do we know about them that or that system that might um, give us some idea about why this was their policy? That's a very good question. You know, uh, Oshner Health, as I said before, is the largest healthcare network in Louisiana. It is the largest one in New Orleans, has been around here for a very large, long time. Uh, they employ a lot of the workers around here. And what's clear is that when uh, the pandemic began in New Orleans, the hospitals were just completely slammed and overwhelmed. And uh, the Oshner facilities received a lot of the COVID-19 cases. So, you know, we have to go back to March. I mean, I know it was a long time ago, but let's let's put, uh, you know, our time travel goggles back on and remember that just two weeks after um, uh, Mardi Gras, that's really when COVID started to take over New Orleans and it, and it spread uncontrollably and exponentially across the city. 
And the hospital within weeks was slammed. Uh, and to accommodate the influx of patients, they converted operating rooms into makeshift intensive care units. Uh, they had, you know, they reappropriated staff and put them in the ICU. I mean, uh, we spoke with uh, over two dozen doctors and nurses who described uh, delivering care that they just weren't accustomed to, you know, in a way having to ration and triage all the patients who were coming in just in order to make sure that they could see everyone. Yeah, yeah. And isn't it true that some of these patients um, may have been able to have been helped and saved if they stayed in the hospital? Isn't that accurate? Yeah, that is accurate. You know, let me tell you a little bit about Sarah Johnson. She's one of the individuals that we profiled in our story. She was an 86-year-old woman, a mother of six children that she raised mostly on her own. Prior to retiring, she was a nurse for 25 years. And even though in recent years her body had weakened, her children said her mind was still sharp. She did her own finances. She did the crossword daily. And she talked with her friends on the phone nearly every day. She was the matriarch of the family and the glue that kept them together. But right after Easter this year, in early April, she fell ill and she couldn't get out of bed for a couple of days. Her family called 911 and emergency technicians found that her blood oxygen saturation level was so low, which is a sign of COVID-19, that she needed to be brought into the hospital. We worked with the family and we got her medical records, interviewed numerous members of her family to understand what she was like before COVID, during COVID, when she was home with hospice. And, and what we found actually surprised us. Um, when we looked at our medical records, we found that the decision to recommend hospice was influenced by a doctor's questionable speculation about her mental capacity, and that on the day she was discharged home, that her kidney issues that she had when she first arrived had improved to the point that she was no longer in renal failure. And one expert even told us that with some additional treatment, she probably could have survived. But within 24 hours of her showing up at the hospital, the hospital called her family and recommended hospice. The family really felt like they had no other options. Plus, hospice was pitched to them as a better place for her to go, where she could have better care. As they, I said before, home hospice company, the family says, was largely absent, and the family felt like they had to take care of their mother mostly on their own, and they believe she suffered in her final days. I can, as an African-American, person, personally speak to experiences. Not a lot, Annie. I've been yeah. fortunate to have had some decent doctors, but I had a couple of situations where we as African-Americans are dismissed, um, especially in the ER, you know, not taken seriously. So this does not surprise me in a crisis such as, as this, that there would be even more of that going on. Um, that type of discrimination on top of the, the panic of a pandemic. But as you looked at, at other cities and states, that wasn't the case. Um, University of Washington Medical Center, Quote, we sent nobody, zero home on hospice to die of COVID. So how do they get it <laughs> and New Orleans doesn't? Absolutely. I mean, and, you know, my colleagues and I, we reported on Chicago. We reached out to the families of the first 100 people to die in the city, the majority of them African-American. And we didn't hear this out. You know, and when you compare Chicago to New Orleans and you hear one story of people going home and then you turn to Chicago and it's people staying in the hospital and getting medical care, it's it's a flag. You have to question why. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, 
also in your reporting, you spoke with nurses who are alleging that um, there were do not resuscitate orders, am I correct, signed by doctors without family input? Yeah, that was one of the most troubling things that we heard from doctors. You know, we were trying to understand what was it like at the height of the pandemic? What was the experience like for doctors and nurses who were just completely overrun? And we heard from three individuals who worked at Oshner Health, who were medical uh, staff members there, that as capacity shrunk, they adopted a very unusual method to withhold life-sustaining care from patients with poor prognoses. In some cases, doctors gave patients do not resuscitate orders without family or patient consent, sometimes overruling families that wanted everything done for their loved one. We're actually still looking into this right now, but that was something that, you know, was so eye-opening because we spoke with individuals at, at different facilities who didn't know each other, who, who had completely similar things to say. Yeah, um, that's pretty scary. I want to lift this up. Is you right? In 2016, a top Oshner attorney published an article in Oshner's Medical Journal that asked what doctors should do when they believe, quote, any clinical treatment other than comfort care will be ineffective or harmful to a patient, end quote. But the patient's family is, quote, in support of doing everything, end quote. The lawyer wrote that it would be, quote, prudent to have two doctors sign off before implementing a do not resuscitate order unilaterally. Have you ever seen anything like that in the health system? Have you ever, is there precedent for that? I, I, I've never heard of that. Yeah, so, you know, while it is very controversial and contentious, you know, it isn't illegal. Uh, it, it actually is uh, allowed, um, you know, as, as the lawyer said in the article. Um, it is obviously controversial, though, as I said. You know, it's not something I think that uh, occurs frequently. But it, but it was something that we were so surprised by because we heard it in different instances of conversations with medical staff at the hospital. You know, ultimately, I think it's important to point out the end-of-life care um, is a distinctly subtle form of medicine. It's dependent on sensitive communication and trust between patients, families, and medical staff. And even in normal times, this, this communication, it just doesn't live up to the ideal. You know, obviously, the coronavirus has created new incredible barriers. Hospital visitor restrictions leave patients completely isolated from their family members who often lack information to make these complex decisions in the end. And so what you have is a recipe for disaster, right? You have families who are completely locked out, literally, of the buildings of which their loved ones are in and are, you know, at the whims of the doctors and nurses who are treating. Many of them are doing a great job, but that lack of information, that lack of transparency causes so many problems and so many so much potential for issues with communication. Um, you also draw somewhat of a comparison to the hospital crisis that occurred during Katrina. Right. Uh, what happened? I, I, what happened then? I'm, I'm almost kind of wondering, Annie. Do we call this? the Katrina of COVID or the COVID of Katrina? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's hard to compare anything to Katrina. Katrina was, you know, a, 
a devastating force for the city, for the hospitals. I mean, remember during Katrina, you know, healthcare workers faced similar kind of um, triage and rationing issues because floodwaters completely knocked out the power at several of the main hospitals, including Charity Hospital, which sees the majority of Medicaid patients in the region, but also at Memorial Hospital. And I'm, I'm not sure if you remember Memorial Hospital, but that's exactly where several um, do not resuscitate patients died after doctors injected them with high doses of morphine. You know, there was a, a large scandal after this. There were lawsuits, there were investigations by the state trying to figure out what was the intention of that. Were the doctors um, actually, you know, they were accused of manslaughter. Was that, was that part of it? And so it, the city does have this history, you could say, um, with, uh, you know, disaster situations and hospitals and um, potentially that being a deadly combination. Um. What might the Legislative Black Caucus be able to do with this? Do we know what level of accountability they may be able to bring? Yeah, so the Legislative Black Caucus wrote, um, drafted up a, about a dozen questions uh, in their letter to the governor's office. And the governor's office could potentially open up an investigation. They could look into, you know, the individual cases that we outlined in our story, but they also could look more broadly, trying to understand why these disparities are existing and understand were there any policies that were in place at these hospitals that led to some of the, um, you know, horrific stories that we heard from families. And, and what more could be done, I think is the important thing. You know, what systems could be put in place in order to uh, improve the communication between families and hospitals uh, in you know, the months to come. I mean, this pandemic is not over. We're just halfway through it if we're lucky. Um, so there's going to be a lot more time um, and you know, work that hospitals need to do in order to make sure that they have good relationships with the patients and the families that they're serving. Tell us, Annie, the story of Irma Winston. So Irma Winston was a, a lovely woman who actually worked for the post office for many years. She rose the ranks. Uh, she was a role model for everyone in her family. Uh, she was very involved in the social scene in New Orleans and Mardi Gras. And she got COVID-19, um, like so many people in the city. Her family members took her to the hospital where she was there for a number of days before they received a phone call as well, um, which were essentially telling them there's nothing more that could be done. And they were pushing the family into uh, in a newly set up inpatient hospice facility. The family didn't want to make this decision immediately. They needed time. They, need, they didn't know what this new facility was like. They didn't know how sick their mother was or what state she was in because they couldn't sit next to her. They couldn't be by her side. And so they asked for more time. But according to them, the hospital said no. They basically said, we're going to discharge her if you don't make a decision. They didn't want to necessarily bring her home because of possibility of infecting the family members around them. And so they said yes to this inpatient hospice facility, but they felt pressured. They felt like this, this there should have been more options. They should have had more time. There should have been better communication. So, so what ended up happening? Did she end up going to... Yeah, so she ended up she ended up going to the hospice um, facility where uh, just over a week later uh, she passed away and her family members were devastated. You know, they feel that this is an injustice um, and that, you know, they weren't listened to. The, they weren't um, that they had specific wishes for their family, for Irma, um, that just weren't granted. Um, and the family believes that she had been given proper care that she may have lived. Is that their belief? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, it's complicated with these cases, but they do feel that had they been able to be by her side, had they been able to work with the doctors and the nurses, that things would have been different. That they, you know, they had medical experts in their family that could have guided her healthcare in a better way. But because of those barriers, because they weren't there, um, because they felt like the hospital wasn't giving them what they were requesting, um, they felt that that all contributed to where she ended up. Um, based upon your reporting, uh, have you gotten any signal um, that Oshner is now willing to talk? You reached out to them and they didn't want to talk to you, right? Is that what happened? Well, we reached out to them with, you know, a number of questions before we published and they did give us some responses. We actually, you know, at the very, very beginning when we just started speaking with families, we had the opportunity to speak with um, one of their top officials there. But, you know, we they didn't answer some of our main questions. For example, they didn't answer the main question about why families were feeling pressured into hospice. Instead, they just said these were difficult decisions um, and, you know, end of life care is very difficult, but they didn't cut any corners. Um, but but one thing that's quite interesting is that after we published the story, uh, you know, they did an interview with the Times Picune and the Advocate, which is a local paper here in New Orleans, and that they said that in some cases, sending hospitalized patients home actually had a positive uh, effect and that several patients who were sent home for palliative care uh, rebounded and lived. So even though they sent them home with palliative care, meaning, you know, end of life care, they survived, <laughs> which to me is quite, quite shocking. Um, the other thing that uh, happened after our publication is that Dr. Robert Hart, the chief medical officer for the healthcare system, told this same local paper that he was, quote unquote, disappointed at the tenor that our reporting was trying to make about race. Um, the fact that we brought up these racial disparities, which we asked them about. Um, and we were quite frank about the fact that this was just something we were finding our reporting and we, we were giving the opportunity for them to talk about. So we were quite surprised um, by the reaction, I guess, of the healthcare system um, and wish that we had had more opportunities to speak about this with them before we published. And, and the numbers speak for themselves. You all didn't spin it. No. <laughs> I mean, these are straight <laughs> <Data>. up. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, these are, um, lastly, there were even some loved one goes home. And then, isn't it true, other members of the family got COVID? That's right. So we also looked into um, another family's story, which is of a 66-year-old Army veteran, Lionel Ferdinand. His wife actually wanted him to come home because she felt like he wasn't comfortable in the hospital. And when he got home, the hospice company was completely absent um, to their needs, didn't give them PPE, even and even a nurse showed up at the house, saw that the family didn't have PPE and saw that they were nervous about not having any kind of personal protective equipment and said that they should contact any and all resources to try to obtain PPE. So they had to, you know, call their family members, try to track stuff down. And if you remember at the beginning of the pandemic, you could not find a mask. You know, you could not no. just like show up at the deli and find a mask. No. So really this was um, really quite difficult on the family and two of the family members ended up getting sick after uh, they took care of their loved one and he passed away. Well, let me ask another objective question. Mm -hmm. Were the hospice care companies, were they stretched too thin? Is there any evidence to show that? 
Yeah, that's a great question. So we reached out to a number of hospice employees during the time, and they said that similar to the hospitals, hospice companies were stretched as well. You know, they cut down on how many visits that they, they said that they cut down on the number of visits they did, trying to mostly use telehealth to, you know, direct medications, talk about side effects, talk about what families are seeing. Um, they also said that uh, they were nervous about entering some houses because of the possibility that, you know, there could uh, be kind of open infections there. There was no control over, quote unquote, how clean the surroundings would be. Um, we also found out that the federal government ended up scaling back hospice regulatory requirements in March, which allowed telehealth to replace face-to-face -face visits if feasible and appropriate. So even the government was aware that hospice might be stretched in this way and allowed them to kind of cut down on those in-person visits that are so important. Yeah. Would, I mean, we're talking about New Orleans and folks, it seems like an eternity ago, but we all remember some of the early stories that were coming out of New Orleans, Mardi Gras, possibility of it having a disproportionate impact. Um, last thing, Anne, and then I'll let you go. Uh, do, do you think, or have you been able to discern whether or not, we know the national response was non-existent. Had there been a better and a more prepared national response, couldn't New Orleans have even done better than what we're talking about today? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, it's hard to kind of like turn back the clock and be like, you know, if, if New Orleans had boatloads of PPE, <laughs> it would have been more prepared. But, you know, I think that we can safely say that um, looking back, you know, if we had taken this a little more seriously, you know, many cities could have been more prepared. Many hospital systems could have been more prepared. Um, you know, the science was there and, you know, people in power knew about it. So as the national leadership was saying, every city and state for themselves, then you put the pressure on a city like New Orleans to basically say as wrong as it was, but still basically to say every family for yourself. Um, yeah, I mean, in a way, the city is cities kind of, you know, it's it's symptomatic of larger problems of being unprepared. You know, it wasn't one doctor that created the situation or one nurse it was one hospital system. I mean, this is what happens when a pandemic ravages a country that's unprepared and unwilling at the highest levels to take it seriously. Well, I know with your reporting, something will come of this. You, as I was sharing with your bio, you are a one person, 60 minutes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> in terms of exposing people and getting them to change. So that's, that's a good thing. Uh, we'll see what happens. This is, uh, again, such a tragic story, but one we need to know about folks. And of, and of course, as always, we ask you to support the great um, journalism of ProPublica.org. They do what um, a few others are able to do, and they have the freedom to go in depth like this. So much of our uh, print journalism these days are summaries of stories, but ProPublica still is uh, maintaining the ability to go in depth on important stories just like this one. Uh, and so we'd all do well to read them and give them some support. Please stop by ProPublica.org. The original piece by Annie Waldeman and her co-author Joshua Kaplan, Sent Home to Die. Do check it out. Annie, a pleasure. Appreciate all your hard work. Keep us posted. Um, what's, the next, what's the next project you're working on? 
Well, we're still digging into a few, a few things in New Orleans, but I'm also starting to look at schools and education. So looking into disparities in uh, education as well. So hit me up with any tips. <laughs> All right, you sure will. Thank you, Annie. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. God, you are our refuge. Send our ancestors to guard our doors. Cast out this virus from our communities and our bodies. Heal, bless, and protect everyone listening and their loved ones. Thank you for listening to Make It Plain and Get Woke. Remember to listen, like, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. If all minds are clear, it has been Made Plain. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.